Welcome to the program, Barrister and Solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan, for legally speaking here on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Lots on the agenda. Where are we going to dive in first? Well, I think a good place to start uh, would be a report uh, that was released uh, last week by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Uh, Dr. Henry, of course, has been very busy and very prominent dealing with the COVID-19 in British Columbia, Uh, but she's got more going on than just that. Uh, And the report that she released last week, I think, has perhaps not received uh, some of the attention that it genuinely deserves. Um, The report that she issued last week, Bonnie Henry, Uh, is entitled Stopping the Harm, Decriminalization of People Who Use Drugs in B.C. Uh, And the punchline of it at the beginning is the decriminalization of people who are in possession of drugs for personal use is the next logical and responsible step we must take to keep people alive and connect them to the health and social supports they need. Uh, And the context for her releasing this report last week Uh, was some statistical information concerning the number of people uh, in British Columbia that are dying of uh, drug overdoses. Yes. That number on average has more than doubled um, since the beginning of the, uh, since March, when the uh, COVID-19 crisis began. Uh, And the number of people that uh, are dying of uh, overdoses, drug overdoses in British Columbia, vastly exceeds, more than double the number of people that are dying of COVID-19. Yes. To provide some context, since March, the total number of people by the end of May that had died of COVID-19 was 164. In that same period of time, March to May, the number of people that died of drug overdoses in British Columbia was 401. More than, you know, it's more than double the number of people that are dying of drug overdoses than are dying of COVID-19. And we've seen the tremendous effort that's gone into uh, preventing COVID-19 deaths. Yes. The other thing which is really notable is that the number of people dying of drug overdose deaths uh, has more than doubled uh, since the COVID-19 crisis began. If you look back at uh, months of January and February of this year in British Columbia, each of those months we lost 77 people in January to drug overdose deaths, Yes. 76 people in February. By May, we lost 170 the number has almost, well, it's, it's more than doubled. Uh, what are the factors that would, uh, how can that be explained? Uh, it would appear that there are two factors. Um, one uh, would be, and this is outlined in the uh, Dr. Henry's report, um, is uh, some um, uh, very dangerous versions of fentanyl and other synthetic uh, opioids uh, that are available on the street. Yes obvious factors um, is that uh, the benefits that have been provided uh, to people to respond to COVID-19, if you supply uh, $2,000 to somebody who's uh, teetering with a uh, opioid addiction, it should be apparent uh, what risk uh, you run. Uh, And the effect of those things has been to um, have more people die. The increase in the number of deaths uh, to opioid uh, uh, addiction and use uh, is much more than the number of people that have died of COVID-19. Yes. Um, it is just so serious. Uh, and when you compare the amount of attention and effort that's been given to trying to stop and control COVID-19 
and compare that to the degree of effort that's put in to stop a much greater number of people dying of uh, opioid uh, overdoses, uh, it is uh, a little uh, bit of a head-scratcher. And so um, the report that Dr. Henry released, I think, uh, deserves uh, much more uh, uh, attention uh, and consideration than it's received so far. Yes. Um, because the uh, amount of uh, harm and death that is flowing from uh, drug addiction and overdoses in British Columbia vastly exceeds uh, the number of deaths caused by COVID-19. And we've been prepared to, to some extent, shut down the economy of the province to prevent COVID-19 deaths, whereas the response to the increased number of opioid deaths, some of which may be attributed to our COVID-19 efforts, seem to be receiving uh, very modest attention. Uh, and uh, that's difficult to take. Uh, yes, so yes, I, I think that just really does need to be uh, looked at. And uh, that report, Dr. Bonnie Henry, Stopping the Harm, Decriminalization of People Who Use Drugs in B.C., and it sets out uh, some of that background and then makes a number of specific uh, proposals uh, to try to uh, address uh, that, uh, including things like uh, providing direction to the police in terms of how they are to uh, deal with uh, people who are in uh, possession of drugs for uh, personal use. Mm, yes. uh, it provides comparisons and information about um, how different approaches, how treating uh, drug addiction uh, from uh, as a medical issue rather than necessarily a law enforcement issue, uh, how that has worked in other places. Um, uh, and one of the uh, outcomes um, uh, where they have tried other sort of medical rather than criminal uh, approaches to stop drug use yes. are just vast decreases uh, in the number of people who are uh, dying. Um, and I think we need to remember as well that some of the measures that we have taken uh, in British Columbia, things like safe injection sites, for example, yes. are genuinely half measures because what they contemplate is somebody going out and buying well, first of all, earning money generally by things like prostituting themselves or committing property crime yes. uh, in order to get money to buy unsafe drugs um, on the street, which they will then bring to an injection site uh, and use. And then when they overdose, you'd be there to revive the person. Uh, that is, um, if you just step back for even a moment yeah. and look at that uh, approach, of course, it may be more human. It's certainly uh, designed to prevent people from dying alone where there's nobody there to revive them. But having people engage in uh, very harmful to themselves and harmful to society behavior uh, in order to buy illegal drugs uh, to then overdose on them is a ridiculous response to a very serious problem. And it's not as if there's no other approach that could be taken to that. Yeah. Surely, if you're interested in uh, avoiding 170 people a month dying, uh, you might consider steps like, um, for people who are addicted to these things, providing drugs to them that will not cause them to overdose uh, and die when used in a facility like that, uh -huh. and not sending them out uh, to engage in uh, property crime and prostitution in order to get more money to come back to the safe injection site in you. Yeah. We cause so much harm to uh, the community and people, and we have uh, an epidemic of people who are uh, dying from this. 
uh, and uh, to watch how we respond to that uh, as a society in comparison to how we uh, respond to COVID-19 is, I think, uh, a cause of very legitimate concern and clearly a very serious concern to Dr. Henry as well. Indeed. I've been convinced over the years to support the medical provision of safe supply. And as you have pointed out in the past, right now the ordinary consequence of a person breaking drug laws to both procure and consume these substances, even if there was no justice system, they are in effect risking literal death. They prostitute themselves to buy a substance that is in effect something that may kill them upon ingestion. We can craft no deterrent in our criminal justice system that is more potent than and death itself, and indeed, that is a risk these people knowingly take every single day. It is against that context that I, and and uh, it sounds like you as well, suppose that we have to, instead of trying to dream up more effective punishments, we have to get smarter and provide them with the substance in a way that's less dangerous. You're exactly right. If, if you've decided that you're prepared to accept the risk of death, which is what you are accepting by using these uh, drugs, uh, we are not going to deter you by threatening to send you to jail. No. You've accepted death, so uh, I'm not sure what uh, we in the criminal justice system could threaten you with uh, that's going to cause you to think, well, perhaps I shouldn't use that deadly substance again. Uh, that's just, we've, we've tried that for many years, uh, and it is simply a clear failure. Yes. I want to take a quick break. Michael Mulligan continues uh, offering us the benefit of his knowledge and insight. He's defense counsel with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We're back right after this. I expended more mental energy than I would have preferred to expend yesterday trying to figure out what the heck was being proposed in terms of changes to British Columbia's Mental Health Act with respect to youth requiring stabilization care after presenting at hospital with symptoms consistent of an overdose. An ordinary person like me, I can read statute and tell it tell you what it says. It's a far more difficult to tell you, though, what laws mean, which, of course, is why we have lawyers. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Next on the agenda, Bill 22, the Mental Health Act. Sure. Well, this was one of uh, a number of pieces of legislation which were recently uh, introduced, not yet passed. Where it comes from uh, is uh, no doubt uh, parents uh, who are alerted to their children who have uh, overdosed and brought have been taken to hospital as a result, uh, then to be released, go back out and continue the cycle of uh, using drugs and overdosing again. So that's what it's designed to try to uh, stop, or at least provide a little bit of a circuit breaker there. But the, the concept of it is that you, if you have a uh, person who's under the age of 19 who's taken to a public hospital, uh, generally as a result of a, an overdose, um, and the legislation is really pretty intricate. It talks about um, sort of the various uh, things which would constitute, for example, a severe problematic substance use, <laughs> which are things like any two of, and two of them are craving for the substance, and <laughs> number three, difficulty controlling the use of the substance. Mm. It's probably a fairly low bar. Yes. Um, so uh, if you've got somebody who's uh, underage uh, and uh, is in that category and who is taken to a public uh, hospital, there's provision for uh, a doctor to sign a certificate uh, that would cause the young person to be then involuntarily kept in a stabilization facility, which is uh, uh, for a period of time, that can be extended up to basically about a week. There are two different certificates, and you have a system for different confirming physicians and this sort of thing. But the concept would be you're going to involuntarily keep the young person 
uh, in a stabilization facility, which sounds like uh, it's designed to be a portion of a hospital, uh, including by various means, things like chemical means, electronic means, mechanical, physical, or other means. Um, so it sounds like it would contemplate things like chemical means suggests to me something like drugging the young person. Yes, or, chemical restraints, indeed. Right, or uh, physically restraining them, or it speaks about having the person in a locked ward with physical restraints or electronic devices to keep them there. Uh, now, I, I suppose there are two possible uh, assessments of that. One is, of course, if you accept you've got somebody who's just incapable of deciding what's going on and they're just immediately a harm or potentially causing harm to themselves, uh, maybe those things are uh, useful in the short term. The, the, in the longer term, of course, at least in my experience, and I've dealt with many people that have been through this and yes. families that have been through this, yes. unless ultimately you've got uh, a person who, whether they're young or old, who wants to get help uh, with their addiction, uh, we are going to be, uh, we have no hope of succeeding in treating you involuntarily. Um, that's just not going to you know, work or happen, right? We're just not going to be able to, you know, mechanically restrain you uh, and force you to get over your opioid addiction. That's not happening. But this contemplates, I think, um, sort of a little bit of a circuit breaker for a short period of time with the hope being, I suppose, that once somebody comes out of the immediate effects of an overdose, um, they would be able to at least contemplate uh, obtaining some longer-term treatment. The Act or these amendments don't permit involuntary longer-term treatment, which is probably futile anyways. But the other thing we need to remember is that uh, passing a piece of legislation doesn't, of course, cause any of these things to happen. You, you would need, if you wish to address some of these things, uh, things like immediately available treatment facilities, yes. immediately available beds. When you have, if you had somebody who's 17 who finally says when they come out of their latest drug overdose, okay, I want help, right? It's not useful to say, well, we'll put you right on the list and we'll be with you in 60 days. If you want, if you have somebody in that spot, you need to fund it and have treatment facilities available really right then. Because letting that person go and say, "Well, you're on the list. Uh, we've got a stabilization plan for you, and we'll see you sometime. We'll call you sometime between 30 and 60 days from now," is almost certainly going to be a waste of time. If the person is looking for help, and they want it. You need to fund it and have the facilities available immediately. And so, whether this scheme uh, has any hope of helping, it is really going to be a function of whether we're prepared to put the resources in to those kind of treatment facilities such that if once you've got somebody saying, yes, I want help, um, you're able to actually provide that. Uh, and in many cases, we don't have that now. Uh, and so uh, the Mental Health Amendment Act isn't going to uh, create uh, available uh, treatment facilities. Um, it simply provides this sort of mechanism to keep the person there, strap them down or something for a few days it's certainly well-intentioned, and it comes from desperate parents seeing their uh, children uh, overdosing in the, repeatedly and going in and out of the uh, hospital being, you know, intubated and given, uh, you know, uh, uh, Narcan and things of this sort to revive them. Uh, and so it clearly comes from a good place. That's what the concern is. You know, whether we should be limiting that to young people is another good question. If, if you're prepared to accept that it's a wise idea to 
Medicaid had strapped people down to allow them to think clearly about their treatment needs. You know, on one level, you may say, why are we stopping at 19? You know, well, I was going to ask. There is already a medical certification process that can take place once, a, say, a wellness check results in a person being transported to hospital. So this would be in addition to that tool in the toolbox. Indeed, you're correct, right? We, we already have provision to involuntarily treat people if they are a threat to themselves or others. And so there are circumstances where you could classify somebody who's repeatedly addicted to drugs, using them, and risking death. Um, you could argue that, well, that person's a risk to themselves, uh, and um, in some cases you could wind up with a certification under the existing mental health legislation. This seems to contemplate sort of a special short-term provision uh, dealing with young people. But if you conclude that uh, this is beneficial, you know, because there is a trade-off there in terms of personal autonomy and civil liberties and so on, right? You're, you know, medicating somebody or strapping them in or locking them in a uh, award to, um, you know, have them wait a period of time and contemplate their position. If you conclude that that's a good idea from that perspective, because it's a balancing, then I suppose the next question to ask is, why are we stopping at 19? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the answer to that may be, uh, it's easier to accept the idea that somebody who is not you uh, may be subject to things like involuntary medical treatment. Um, but, you know, no doubt this comes from a uh, well-intentioned place in terms of parents being desperate to try and get some help for their children. That, yeah. That's where this comes from. We have approximately four and a half minutes left. Uh, a couple of stories that we could discuss. Where would we like to go next? Sure. I think I can probably cover those both briefly. There are two other pieces of uh, legislation uh, that were introduced. One of them are some proposed amendments to the Wills and Estates and Succession Act, uh, and those are intended to permit uh, electronic wills, which seems like a very good idea in the current COVID-19 circumstances. And this would codify uh, and create this concept of an electronic will, which could be witnessed by people electronically that aren't physically present. And it's following up on a ministerial order, Ministerial Order 161, uh, that at least on an emergency basis permits the remote witnessing of wills. Um, ordinarily, you need to have two witnesses who are physically present. Uh, that, of course, may not be possible if somebody's, for example, in a care home and you can't have people going in there, and we can't tell somebody you can't have a will without increasing the prospect that you're going to need a will. Yes, yes. Uh, and so uh, on an emergency basis, that's been allowed with witnesses being remote. One of them must be a lawyer, and there's sort of an interim measure. This would codify that and create a longer-term um, solution to it. So that seems to my mind like a, a good piece of legislation. I don't expect there'll be too much opposition to it. The other thing briefly, which I think is very problematic, um, is it's Bill 11. Yes. Uh, and this is the legislation which would um, go down the road of uh, no-fault insurance. Uh, and there are certainly some really troubling elements of that, which I think deserve probably some more time discussing them. All right. The basic principle is that it will prohibit you from suing if you're injured by somebody in a car accident. And instead, you'll be uh, at the mercy of, they refer to it ominously as the corporation, <laughs> that being ICBC, <laughs> the corporation, who will, who will then make all kinds of decisions for you uh, and who is entitled and empowered to do things like deny you any compensation at all, at all if you don't meet their requirements, provide prescribed information, or do all kinds of other things. Basically, 
it will turn every motor vehicle accident into a, a, a WCB claim where you're at the mercy of the corporation. So We are reminded uh, as ever that uh, good law and good public relations are often different things. Yes. <laughs> so that one's, a, a, I think, a very substantial worry um, and one that I think will deserve some further uh, scrutiny. But uh, on the upside, uh, you should be able to get your will done uh, without putting yourself in uh, in harm's way to accomplish that. Now, you have helped us in the past understand situations in which the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia may bring civil action against a driver who deviates from the... Now, what is it? It's a marked departure from the reasonable standard of care observed by an ordinary prudent driver? I know I have that wrong. It's something akin to that, though. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are uh, provisions uh, at the moment, of course, you can uh, sue somebody if they injure you, yeah. uh, and there can be, uh, as a result of carelessness, negligence, right? Yes. Uh, and the idea of this legislation broadly will be to remove your ability to sue somebody who injures you through their carelessness, and uh, instead, it won't really matter whether you were careless or not, so you can drive around without uh, having that uh, as a worry for yourself. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, instead, the idea will be we don't care who uh, caused the accident or whether somebody was careless or not. Uh, you or the careless person who hit you will be treated exactly the same way, uh, and basically you, you will go uh, hat in hand to the corporation uh, asking them to uh, provide you uh, care and assistance, uh, and you will have little by way of real remedy if they don't treat you in a fair and reasonable way. So. I suppose the, the big picture here is you should ask yourself, based on the experiences you may have had with ICBC in the past, uh, whether you would like to be in the future in a circumstance where uh, they can treat you pretty well any way they want uh, and you will be without remedy at all. Basically, ask yourself, do you think ICBC treats you fairly? If so, <laughs> this legislation may be for you. Uh, and it may also be for you if you're somebody who is uh, not a very good driver uh, or somebody who, who uh, may be inclined to drive in a careless way because that will no longer much matter uh, if this passes. So there are really big concerns in this uh, legislation, and I hope that uh, they are considered carefully. No doubt, you know, of course, all of us are worried about, you know, our health and yeah. COVID-19, all these things, but this will have potentially a just major impact on you know, thousands of people a year uh, who can wind up in a pretty awful spot and will wind up with nothing they can do about it, uh, and that's really worrisome. We will monitor the situation carefully. Michael Mulligan, thank you for your time as always. Thank you so much for having me. Legally speaking, every Thursday during the second half of our second hour on the program here on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers.